Since beginning the Permaculture Podcast in 2010, I've lived in the gift economy and asked for your support to produce the show. During the past decade, you've allowed me to share hundreds of interviews with amazing practitioners from all over the world to anyone with an internet connection. Along the way, you've also helped put food on my table, take care of my children, and handle some acute medical needs. Approaching the 10th anniversary of the show, I'm asking for your support again so I can purchase a camera and microphones to record video interviews and permaculture site tours. Together we can add to the bounty of knowledge and share what permaculture looks like in person and on the ground. If you've never donated to the show, now's the time. If you've donated before and continue to see value in my mission to share voices from across the spectrum of permaculture practices and practitioners, please donate again. You can do so online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail to my new address, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. As a thank you to anyone donating $50 or more during this campaign, I'll send you a USB drive with every currently available interview, monologue, and discussion from the first decade of the Permaculture Podcast. That includes the first show from 2010 through to the 10th anniversary episode out on October 10th of this year. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. When I left my permaculture design course, I was fairly comfortable walking the landscape and looking for areas of sun or shade and tracking how that would change throughout the day. To walk barefoot after a brief rain to feel where the soil drained quickly or to find spots where water pooled, even if I couldn't see it with my eyes. To build either a water or an A-frame level to plot and map contours. I knew how to make a base map, a plant list, and to use those to put together a design. With shears and a pocket knife, I could prune limbs or loosen pot-bound roots. With a shovel and spade, I could dig holes and put plants in the ground. Leaving my permaculture design course, I could effectively design for a residence and work as a gardener, and with a bit of practice and planning as a teacher. What I didn't know how to do was start a design company that could meet client needs efficiently. The scope of permaculture provided a huge number of tools, but I didn't know how to select the ones that would create an efficient toolbox. I've learned a lot since then, but find that how to work as a professional designer remains something missing from broader permaculture education. Though I see permaculture as a bigger umbrella than just landscape design and teaching permaculture design courses, these are areas where people have and can continue to find successful livelihoods. As that is the case, I want to share more about professional practices so you can take up the mantle of a designer and hang out your own sign offering design services, if you would like. As my main work is as an educator and not a landscape designer, to further this conversation, I wanted to call on someone with experience to share their process. So my guest today is Owen Wormser, a landscape designer from Massachusetts who specializes in low-maintenance landscape designs with an understanding of the unique role and needs of permaculture practitioners. Using the framework of his design business, Abound Design, as a model, he shares how he goes from finding clients, including his early days getting started, through to his design process, and how he lays out plans to finalize the design with his client. During our conversation, he includes his thoughts on what work to accept, how as a professional we spend more time designing than just our time in the studio, and ways to consider setting our prices. We end with his thoughts on the do-it-yourself spirit of permaculture and how that translates to our work as professional designers. Enjoy this conversation with Owen, 
and I'll join you again after. Thank you for joining me again for a conversation about professional design and installation. When we spoke last time during our interview about your book, Lawns into Meadows, I really liked the way you relayed your experience and methods for working with clients. The way you walk them through the process of going from an initial conception to an installed design. And so for our conversation today, I was wondering if you could take us through your design practices. Can you start by sharing how you reach out to find clients? Now that you're established, is this something where people are just referred to you? Or are you still out there seeking people? And then from there, can you guide us through the process from working with your clients and their vision to getting plants into the ground? So this, I'm in the second iteration of a landscape design business. Uh, My present company, Abound Design, is something that I started promoting in earnest about five years ago. So that's when I really um, started building that up. And I had a previous uh, landscape design build company before that I had founded and eventually sold. What I find, and I think this is particularly relevant to the permaculture world, is that the most successful uh, way that I found to get my business and awareness about my work out in front of other people is to actually put that work in public places as much as possible and at a minimum really show people to the degree possible what I do. So the reason I'm kind of presenting it that way is because that's really what I did. Um, Five years ago when I was starting up Abound Design from scratch, uh, no one really knew who I was anymore. I hadn't been practicing for a couple of years and certainly nobody knew my new business. And what I did actually was I offered to install a project for a store owner who had a prominent landscape right in the center of a a major intersection or right at a major intersection. And uh, the landscape was kind of uh, lacking and I offered to do it to put in a new uh, landscape form at cost and I put together a design and he agreed to do it. And so right there, I was able to actually show people directly what type of work I can do. And I find that with specialized work, a lot of times the larger audience doesn't have a clear understanding of what it might look like. So the more that that can be shared, the the better off you're going to be when starting a business. So that's been really important. At this point in time, I'm fortunate I'm able to get word of mouth jobs. And that really comes about also because I'm really careful with all of my clients to just dot the I's and cross the T's like every step of the way. And communication is super important in that process. And I'm really careful to say what I'm going to do and then to do exactly what I say and to keep people apprised, to try to educate them about what I'm doing so they really understand when I leave what's happening. And um, really, I'm building relationships with people. And if I take care of them and give them something that's functioning and beautiful, then um, they're going to be happy and they're going to tell their friends. And as you build that rapport over time, you reach a point where you're no longer having to go seek business, but instead it's presented to you. People are reaching out to you because they've become familiar with your work and seek you out for it? That is correct. And because my design interest is fairly specific and because I'm focused on creating low-maintenance landscapes as much as possible, I'm not going to be taking any, any job that comes my way. So rather than having to sort through work, it's really advantageous if I can kind of get into the right slipstream 
and then start having uh, these jobs find me. And that has been possible. And I don't think that that's something that's just exclusive to me. I have had the experience of doing this before, but I think that if you're able to have a specialized type of work that you're offering and that you can make that known to people, people will find you. Now, were you as discriminating about customers and work in the beginning? I'm laughing because to a large extent, yes. And certainly in this go around, I have been. And I'm kind of chuckling because in the short term, that was you know economically difficult. And there's points in my life where I haven't even had close to enough work. But I was really adamant for myself personally about sticking with doing the work that I wanted to do, in part for practical reasons. Because if you get sort of sucked into a flow of work that isn't exactly what you, you want to do, but it starts to make you a lot of money or it starts to be successful, you almost kind of get stuck doing it. And not that that's necessarily bad. In some situations, that might be a good thing. But if you really want to do a certain type of work, that can kind of pull you away from that. So sometimes with more specialized work, it takes a little more patience and um, determination to make it happen. Really kind of staying on that track and committing yourself to those overall goals so you can do exactly the work you want to? Yeah, because doing the work is ultimately how you get better at it. Like reading and thinking about things certainly goes a very long way and is terribly important. But to really get skilled working with the earth and plants and, you know, grading and all the things that come along with permaculture work and landscape work, the best way to, to get good at it is to do it. So if you can be active at the same time doing jobs that are relevant to what you want to be learning about and getting better at, then you're in really good shape. And when this work comes to you, what's your initial client conversation like? Do you have a form you work through and a standard process? Or do you just let your customer describe what they want to do and work with them as best you can? I usually try to have an initial phone conversation with people. And fortunately, the people who are contacting me at this point in time, and also relative to where I live in Western Mass, are people who are looking, almost always, are looking for the type of work that I offer. But I have a conversation with them at a minimum just to make sure that that's the case. Because if it's not a match, then that can be disappointing for them. They might want me to be doing things that I don't particularly focus on or that someone else could do for, you know, better or cheaper because I have a specialized focus. So I just kind of make sure that we're on the same page. And then I also really just try to explain to them what the process is so that they know what they're getting into. And for me, that process does begin with them telling me what, they're, what they want, generally and specifically. And once I have that phone conversation, I get that information from them about what they want, usually in person. I set up a meeting and we meet and we walk through the landscape and I just ask them to tell me everything that they're thinking, basically. And I start bouncing ideas off them. And really, I've ex- I explain to them that I try to act as a guide. So I'm trying to incorporate sound design, good function, all of these elements that are really important and to make sure that, that the whole process doesn't stray from the sort of central tenets to what needs to happen. But at the same time, I'm really collaborating with the client. And that process is something that I guide them through by basically sharing information and perspective as we go, 
which includes things like budget issues, like, oh, if you want to plant larger trees, they're going to be more expensive, but they'll, you know, and they might even take a little longer to establish it first and just details like that so that they're informed. And then they also understand in the end why we made the choices we made. So I really try to give them that information and we work together and basically just go step by step until we're on the same page. And that usually entails having a plant list and a clear plan in front of us, as well as a strategy on how to implement it. When you're working with clients, how do you establish that idea of what their values and goals are through the conversation? Do you have like particular standard questions you like to ask to get to that plant list and what's on the ground? Or do your clients and customers tend to trust you to develop that for them and they just kind of have to check it off as you go? It's a little bit of both, and it, it, it can vary in terms of the balance, the balance between those two, client to client. Everybody tends to have preferences. Occasionally, people don't have strong preferences, and then they're, they, they tend to be more comfortable with me just coming up with suggestions as a starting point. But usually, people do have preferences, and that could relate to textures or colors or how much of the landscape they want to be edible or how open they want a space to be. And so basically I'm just kind of quizzing them as we go and trying to get a sense for what really works for them, what makes them happy, sort of what brings them joy in the landscape. And I really try to encourage people to be transparent about what they think and and reminding them that a lot of the process in designing a landscape is is somewhat subjective and that it's their landscape and that we want to really choose plants and design the landscape so that it's really so that it really dovetails with that preference that they have so i really try to perform a service for people that way and i think by making that clear they become comfortable sharing what they're thinking because i think sometimes with a professional clients are a little shy sometimes, or they might think certain ideas are silly, or they're not, you know, up to snuff in terms of, you know, whether they would look good, things like that. So I really try to get them to put everything on the table. And then we just kind of figure it out from there. And building that relationship makes your job as a designer easier then, because everything's on the table and fairly well known when you go back to your office to start putting together the design? It does. It makes it more straightforward. And also, I mean, there's a self-serving aspect to it that is just also very convenient in that they know why I'm doing things and we're making the choices together. So I don't run into the situation of, oh, why did you pick that? Or why did you do this? Because we're figuring it out together. So there's an advantage for me that way. But really, I think the main reason I try to do it, and I mentioned this earlier, was it allows the client when the landscape actually built to feel like it's theirs because they understand why things are there, what they're going to do, you know, what colors the flowers are going to be, what size the shrubs are going to be. Different aspects of the landscape start to make sense to them. And really, they're the ones that are going to have the relationship with the landscape. So it's terribly important that they have that perspective and kind of education throughout the process. And it sounds then like this also helps to alleviate any problems then if a client wants to select something that, you know, might require ongoing fertilization or additional water needs compared to something else in their design. If there's something their heart or mind is really set on compared to the rest of what you're designing for them, 
specifically to be low maintenance? Yes. And um, usually just giving people that information allows them to kind of figure it out on their own because people are usually looking for a low maintenance landscape um, when they hire someone else or they probably wouldn't be hiring someone because they'd just be chipping away at it themselves. Usually there's an issue with how much time they can actually put into it. And so low maintenance, for example, becomes really important. So if say they're someone initially who maybe doesn't know much about plants, just says, I like roses, you know, and I'll say, well, you know, traditionally like, you know, English tea roses and what people think of commonly for roses are high maintenance and you have to fertilize them and take care of them. And they'll be like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. And then they'll just say, you know, that doesn't really fit in. And in a few cases, maybe someone's really set on a particular plant. Maybe they had a grandmother that kept roses or something to that effect. And we'll say, okay, in this one area, you know, we'll put in a couple of roses. The rest of the garden's going to be super low maintenance, but we'll teach you how to take care of this. You know, I'll point you to some information where you can figure this out. And we'll make that happen. So we make really, the process allows client to make really informed decisions and kind of understand the ethos behind it, like you were saying with your question. And then once you've walked through this and kind of come to a common understanding, what is your in-office design process like? It sounds like the conversation with the client informs a lot of that so that by the time you do sit down to draft up designs and finalize your plant list, you have a lot of ideas in mind. But as a designer with a lot of work under your belt, what does it look like when you're there by yourself in your office putting this together? What are you thinking through or what software or activities are you engaging in to get from a concept to a design? I really use my visual imagination a lot. And that's one of the things that has allowed me to be an effective designer. I'm fortunate in that I have the ability to really kind of... uh, look at a space and imagine what it what it can be or what it could look like if I put certain plants in certain locations or altered the grade or, you know, generally change the landscape. So basically, I'm going through that process in my head. I am basically also going, I'm sort of like stacking up layers and trying to see which parts of them align. So Part of it, for instance, when choosing plants is just based on availability. It can be really difficult to get certain plants sometimes at certain times of the year. And unless there's a really distinct focus on it, on a particular species, then that can kind of inconvenience the whole job. So I really try to steer things towards what can be had reasonably for economic and practical reasons. And not always, because sometimes we kind of you know, there is a more specialized focus. But in general, that's kind of an example of how I'm kind of trying to steer things. And so through the design process, I'm thinking along those terms. So that would mean even just like the size of the plants that we're buying initially. So there's kind of a filter that I'm, I'm going through that way. Really, I like to draw ultimately in that I feel like I can actually move through the landscape in my imagination much more easily when I'm using my hand and actually drawing on paper. So that's something that I kind of err towards. And I try not to do, um, try not to spend more time in the design process than I really need to, because people ultimately are hiring me to create the landscape, not the design. And so really the design is what allows us to create the landscape and to make sure that we're on the same page. So that's kind of what I tell clients. I say, you know, 
I'll do as much design work for you as is necessary to make sure we're on the same page. I can make really beautiful plans that would, you know, take dozens of hours. That usually isn't necessary. And one aspect of that is that even with planting plans, especially with planting plans, but with plans in general, all but like the most sort of uh, carefully designed spaces that require set plans like public spaces or larger projects. But with residential projects, almost every aspect of the project can change or will change to some degree. And that's especially true with planting plans. So what I tell clients is um, I'll get all the plants here, I'll lay them out, and I'll actually show you and I'll explain to you what my suggested plant layout is based on what's on the ground. And that allows me to check it as well. And it's like, oh, I'm going to move this plant over six inches because it's a little bit close to this one, et cetera. So that's kind of the final part of the process. I really try to lay out as much as I can on the ground, both for my sake so I can tweak it and kind of maximize the effect that we're going for, but also for the client so they can see that and be part of the process and understand some of the decisions that are being made. And when it comes to drawing out your designs or putting them on paper, do you have an art or drafting background that you fall back on? Or is this something that you developed over time? I do. I actually went to school for landscape architecture and got my degree in landscape architecture. And one of the advantages of getting a degree in in landscape architecture is that you have to do a lot of drafting. And so that was really good practice. And um, it helped me become comfortable with that process itself. There's a Midwest permaculture designer that one of my permaculture teachers studied with, who used to joke that the best thing he could do was to draw stick figures. And very often his designs were, you know, these fairly simple shaded maps with circles here and squares there and whatnot to represent his plants. But it was enough for him to convey these ideas to his clients. And I understand that that wouldn't match what you're doing from a landscape architect's background. But as long as we can represent and communicate these ideas to a client, it sounds like it doesn't have to be the most beautiful or elegant thing in the world to move a project forward. Exactly. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in the presentation. And to be fair, I think a lot of landscape architects, that's kind of their job. A lot of, or at least a significant part of their job is to make pretty presentations because they're presenting to say larger organizations with, you know, donor bases or people who want to display the plans and show them off or whatever it might be. For most of what people are doing on a residential level, and especially in the permaculture community, what you're pointing to is, is all that's necessary. And all that needs to happen is that people need to be on the same page so that your clients know what you're going to do. And you can also, as a designer, work your way through that process so that you know what's going to happen. So for example, one of the most effective approaches that I use is actually just taking a photograph dropping the opacity down to half or less so it's, it's visible but kind of faded. And then I'll just take colored pencils and sketch over it so that people can see what I'm thinking about halfway through the design process before we've even selected plants so that clients can see what I'm thinking for massing with plants. How tall are they? How much space do they take up? And, um, you know, each drawing might take me five minutes 
10 minutes at the most. I'm just kind of making really rough lines with colored pencils to give them a sense of what that'll be. And it's super effective and my clients love it. And it doesn't cost them a lot of money for me to draw hours of beautiful pictures. So um, yeah, whatever's most effective really. And as long as you can convey clarity between yourself and the client, then you're in good shape. And I really like the process that you've described because it's one of the pieces that I ran into when I was working primarily as a permaculture designer in the beginning, as I kind of dived into this field before I decided to go into communicating and educating around these ideas, was just the amount of time that could be spent on design and designing, poking around ideas, moving things around. Whereas with this client education process that you have, you spend more time developing a relationship that's full of information and knowledge for the client so they can understand what they're taking ownership of at the end of it, that you can minimize the amount of time that is spent on on paper design and rather move directly into that implementation. Yeah, and there's a couple other pieces to it that come to mind. And one of them is that that process being really collaborative with the client allows them to contribute as well it really welcomes that. And sometimes clients come up with the best idea in the whole process, or they might just be like, hey, have you thought of this? It might be a small detail, but it can really add to the, to the process. So that's one um, aspect of it that's really beneficial. So the other thing is that the design process really happens at random times inside my head. So it's sort of like the interaction with the client and the landscape itself, because it, it requires that I spend time in the landscape and really get to know it. Um, but with that information sort of going into my head, it's almost like that's the CPU. And over time, it just processes because I think in terms of design, I've trained myself to think that way and I enjoy it. So it's always just kind of gestating in there and ideas come up and it's if you're really trying to serve a client then what i tell them is basically like you have my brain i'll bill you for the time that i'm actually doing the work but i'm thinking about this way more than i'm actually going to be billing you for because i'm constantly kind of mulling it over and so the reason I say that is because it's important not to limit yourself as the designer to try like, okay, I'm going to go to my drafting table. I'm going to be working on this now. Really, I just think about it all the time and I try to draw ideas from wherever I am, might be in another landscape, uh, might be in a nursery that I'm visiting. So I just kind of have a placeholder in my head and it's always there. And then there's moments, so to speak, where I'm putting that down on paper or I'm making that more concrete and sharing it which reminds me of something I learned many years ago in the consulting world. It's that consultants' numbers can look really scary on paper for what they're going to charge you per hour or what you as a consultant or designer may be charging someone. But that's to account for all of that unbillable time as we're just eating our cereal in the morning, you know, turning over a customer idea, and that's the moment where you're like, oh, I have this insight. And you scribble something down into your notebook and the way that all that kind of, when you do this work professionally, it just becomes part of your everyday life. Absolutely. And it's important that um, your clients know that in part because they want someone who has, you know, the focus and passion to do this work because that's really what makes it in the end have the possibility of being special. So um, 
they're usually on board with that, but it takes a certain degree of you know, self-regulation to be fair to them and fair to yourself. So it's a delicate balance that way. And you just kind of have to keep track of it and figure out how to, how to make that balance work. And take some time to consider what your rates are going to be when you're getting into this so that it pays an appropriate wage to yourself while also being fair to your clients. Exactly. And I think part of that equation, especially when you're starting out, is remembering that if you're not fully seasoned at what you're doing, you're essentially getting paid when you get a job to practice on a client. And if you're not able to completely sort of do the sort of address everything that might come up in the landscape or with the client 100%, then that means there's some holes. And that's fine because learning how to do this really well doesn't happen overnight. And And truthfully, it's an endless learning process anyways, because there's always so much more to learn. But initially, when it might be a little bit more shaky and you're starting out, just charge less and and be fair that way, because it takes the pressure off of you as well. It's a very fine line, because there's also that whole reality that sometimes people don't feel they're getting anything if you're not charging enough. So it's just something that's a kind of a dance, and you have to figure it out. You remind me of Many, many years ago, I used to work at the Pennsylvania Renaissance Festival, and a very, very talented leather carver came in, and you could sit there and watch her work all day, making her carvings, finishing them, putting them on the wall, and people would watch her do this, but they wouldn't want to buy anything because it just didn't seem like they could all be handmade because of how reasonable her prices were. And one of the people at the fair, I think it was one of the vendor coordinators, told her to double her price every day until they started selling and then to double her prices again until they stopped selling, and then to drop it back. And at that point, you will have found how it is that people value your work. And we couldn't believe it. She raised her prices and started selling out all the time, to the point she was charging hundreds and hundreds of dollars for custom-made belts and other things, and her customers absolutely loved it. Yeah, that's it's funny because human psychology and just trends and what people are comfortable with as consumers are, are, is just a huge part of this. And it makes me think of a story where um, Banksy or someone associated with Banksy was selling Banksy art from a table um, across from the Met maybe like five years ago, completely inconspicuous with no indication that these drawings had anything to do with Banksy and they sold like three of them or something or four of them, a very small amount for like 60 bucks each or 40 bucks cheap art. And then when they actually told people about the gag, the people who had bought them found out that they're worth, you know, significant amounts of money. And, but without that sort of aura around the name or the prestige, no one was even paying attention. So Really, in general, people kind of follow trends as consumers. And for better and for worse, we kind of have to play that game. As we're working with clients and establishing our price and things, you've walked us through working with clients and your design process and having plants on the ground and showing clients where they'll go. And I don't know that we need to dig in to how to get plants in the ground, but do you have any insights or suggestions when it comes to the planting and implementation? I find it's really helpful to have all the plant material there and um, to have it actually laid out. So unless it's a really large site and that's somehow detrimental to the plants themselves because they're not going to be able to be watered properly or they might blow over, you know, just generally suffer in some way, 
then you, you know, obviously wouldn't want to do too large of an area. But when I'm doing residential landscapes, typically I try to lay out everything that I have. Certainly the trees and shrubs and the larger plants, I try to do that. And then maybe I'll do the perennials separately. But I do try to lay out, um, like if I'm doing perennials, try to lay them out all at once because that allows me to adjust spacing and to really play around with what sort of fine-tuning the design. So that's one of the things that I I really try to adhere to because it seems to make a big difference. And then once you've gone through the installation, what kind of after-installation support do you provide to your clients? Yeah, so I really, I actually continue that process that I'm going through with the client during the design. And I really make myself available to them so that they feel comfortable asking me questions because oftentimes they're the ones that are going to be taking care of it. And I have to kind of educate them on what they're doing and how to do it. So that basically means that they need to gain an understanding of what the weeds are, you know, what the plants are that we've planted and what needs to happen in regard to both in terms of caring for the garden in general. And, um, I really try to hand the garden off to my clients in a way that is ongoing. And so over the course of a year or two, it usually ends up being that they then start to grasp sort of what to them was previously theory. And as they play around with their garden and pulling weeds and watering initially, just help things establish, they start to see what I've been explaining to them and then it starts to click. So I really kind of help guide that process. For instance, with some people that are clients that are more uh, used to traditional type gardens, I have to sometimes really push them away from watering or babying the plants because the plantings that I put together are really low maintenance. So once the plants establish, you know, there's no watering, there's no fertilizing. The gardens are fairly self-sustaining. So it ends up being weeding and maybe a little bit of maintenance with the, with the perennials if they start growing into each other, things like that. But it's really hands-off. And sometimes I have to train my clients to do that. And it can be really hard for them because they're not used to it. So that's just an example of the kind of perspective that I'm imparting to them. And I really try to make sure they have the information that they need so that it becomes theirs. And it's that level of comfort too that makes them feel taken care of and that also makes it much more likely that they're going to pass your name along to someone else because you've done kind of more than they expect because as consumers and also people who are used to dealing maybe with other landscapers or designers, there's not often a lot of follow through. It's like, okay, we're done. We got paid and we're out of here. But to me, one of the most important parts of the whole process is making sure that the garden establishes and without good maintenance and an understanding how to take care of it, that doesn't happen. So I really kind of uh, keep an eye on things and make sure that happens. And do you have any insight specific to the permaculture community for anyone who would like to do this kind of work? because of our focus on holistic design? One thing with doing permaculture work that's a little tricky, when you're doing it for other people, really I think one of the central pieces of permaculture is kind of um, there's an element of doing it yourself and homesteading and 
taking care of one's own landscape. So I find that my clients who hire me a lot of times aren't really in a position or even necessarily interested in doing that sort of thing. So I mentioned that because finding clients who are wanting to do that and at the same time don't want to sort of figure it all out themselves and start from scratch and they're going to hire you to do it are relatively rare. Hopefully that's becoming less rare and um, I hope that happens. But the reason I mention it is because when I do put in permaculture landscapes or elements of permaculture in a landscape, I really generally, based on necessity with my clients, I'm focusing on plants and strategies that are very low maintenance. So plants like pawpaws or blueberries or raspberries, fruit trees that are really easy to take care of, more in the direction of things like American persimmons or apricots, um, trees like that, uh, shrubs like elderberries that are basically bulletproof. So I really try to focus in that direction. If you give people something that's too complex, then either you'll be stuck taking care of it. And if that's part of the plan and you're on board to do that, great. But anything less than that, usually what ends up happening is the garden doesn't function as it should because it needs someone to guide it into position and then kind of make sure that it stays there. So it doesn't mean that complexity is bad. It just means that the garden has to function properly over time. And so that's a really important thing to think about when focusing on permaculture because permaculture can get really complex with guilds and systems and that's a wonderful thing when done properly. But if it's not, it kind of gives permaculture a bad name and can leave your client with maybe a sour taste in their mouth. So that's one thing to think about. And another one is um, ultimately people really, they like function and value, you know, so if something really produces well, like a blueberry bush, then it's easy to pick, it's easy to get the berries, people are really happy with it. If something's a little more esoteric or hard to sort of understand or say it's something that you have to pick and process and boil three times before you can eat it, people are much less likely to use it. So it's important to kind of tailor things to what your client can handle. And I would say lastly, people also like beauty, you know, and beauty is terribly important. And I think sometimes in the permaculture world, it's easy to get really focused on function alone and in some regards, to the average person, function when it comes to permaculture production, food forests, and things like that, is something that they don't understand or even necessarily see. So beauty is something that you don't have to be an expert or knowledgeable in permaculture to be able to see. And that's something that can really pull anyone into a design and into a garden. So I think beauty is terribly important in terms of really, I guess, winning people over and showing them that, you know, a garden isn't just a functional space that's producing resources and healing the ecology of an area, but that a garden is just somewhere like that if you're a person, uh, you can also hang out there and it's really beautiful. In the time remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? You know, I think... um, One of the really important things with uh, learning how to be a good designer is experimentation and practice. 
And the permaculture community excels at that in a way that is really heartening. And I think it's a really um, wonderful asset. And so in the end, whatever you can make work, if you can create really vibrant, beautiful landscapes or vibrant landscapes that produce a lot of food or medicine or other qualities um, that heal the earth, then that's really what matters in the end because doing this work is about really the results you can get. And the proof is in the pudding. And um, I think that that sort of spirit is alive and well in the permaculture world in a way that's really heartening. And um, I just encourage people to, uh, to do what they love and keep playing around with it. Thank you for that, Owen, for sharing everything you did with us about your design process and for joining me for this interview on the Permaculture Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. And that was Owen Wormser. Find out more about him and his design firm at abounddesign.com. If you'd like to learn more about Owen's background and his recent book, Lawns into Meadows, we recorded an interview about this recently, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. You can learn more about his book and pick up a copy at stonepeerpress.org. If you choose to become a professional designer, over time you'll develop your own process for speaking with customers, your methods for creating designs, and the ways to go from paper to plants in the ground. If you're already a designer, you probably have many of these established already. Wherever you find yourself, I hope this conversation with Owen provided a fresh perspective and tools you can use every day in your practice, whether that's taking a more education-focused approach to your customer interactions or finding ways to create functional designs more efficiently. But what Owen shared here is only the beginning. If you're interested in starting your own design company, what additional questions do you have? If you were already a professional designer, what would you add to what we discussed in this interview? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you enjoy this episode or any others in the archives, join the Permaculture Podcast community on Patreon at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. I'm also here to help you with your permaculture journey, whether that's deciding your next steps, if you're looking for someone to bounce ideas off of for your next project, or to refine your permaculture design. You can schedule a one-on-one consultation or casual conversation at calendly.com permaculture. Until the next time, spend each day practicing your designs and refining your process while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.